0: Good afternoon and welcome to Your DIY Health here on the Spreaker Radio Network and simulcasting on free conference call. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It is Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023, and this program is meant to provide natural healing information only and is in no way meant to replace the advice of a competent medical professional, assuming you can find one. I search for and present to my listeners natural modalities that simply assist and augment the body's ability to heal itself. The body wants to fix itself. The body knows how to fix itself. It has a God-given innate ability to do so. The only thing that's missing is the raw materials. And when you put those back into the mix, stand back and wait to be amazed because your body's going to do some really cool stuff. Now, you can visit my website at yourdiyhealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R-D-I-Y, like do-it-yourself health, H-E-A-L-T-H, yourdiyhealth.com. There's all kinds of information there, including... The uh, t- terahertz frequency devices. And you have two choices now, or two different companies. My personal all time favorite now is the Oli Life company with the P90 foot device that is just um, takes it to a whole new level. The iTeraCare devices are fantastic, they work great, they do a good job. But the uh, Oli Life products, number one, are much better constructed, number two, are much better as far as the results you get. And as a result, they're my favorites, but, uh, there's information on both there. Uh, the way you order is all there explained as well. Uh, only life is in pre-launch. They won't be uh, live in the U S officially until after the first of the year, but you can still order now. And if you are interested in a home-based business opportunity, uh, it's a good one. And, uh, now's the time because you're getting in on the ground floor so to speak i mean they haven't even officially opened in the u.s yet so you would be at the beginning uh they're the top of the heap so to speak so uh, check that out and uh, take a look at it if you have any questions hit the contact me button and i'll do what i can to get your questions answered and get you on the right track also while you're on the website be sure and hit the radio shows tab at the top of the page is the link to the archive page set up through castbox.fm uh I think we're probably over 1,400 shows there now. Um, But they're all shareable via email and social media. They're annotated as to what we talked about. And um, just have fun with it. Share them far and wide. And then right below that is the Rumble button. If you click that, it'll take you right to our new Rumble page. We've been uh, uploading every show that we've done so far uh, since the beginning of October is there. And uh, everything up through yesterday's shows. So uh, we're keeping them up, keeping up to date with them. And usually it takes about an hour to an hour and a half from the time the show ends, uh, the live show ends, before it's actually propagated and live on Rumble. Uh, But I encourage you to check it out, uh, like, (coughs) excuse me, follow the page and then like the videos and share them as well. The more likes, the more shares they get. The more their um, algorithm cranks the thing up to the top of the list and uh, more people can find out about it that way. We're slowly gaining uh, the number of number of views and uh, hopefully that will continue. So anyway, check that out. And then uh, if you scroll down a little further, you'll see the information on the shows we do when they're on and how you listen. And at the bottom of the page is the link to the Facebook page set up for the show as well as the Telegram channel. Now, keep in mind the topics discussed and opinions mentioned on this show are those of the host and or guests and don't necessarily represent the opinions of Spreaker, Free Conference Call, Rumble, any of the other platforms we're on, or any of the alphabet agencies out there listening in. Nothing we say in this show should be construed as an attempt to diagnose, treat, or cure any kind of a health or wealth issue. It's all here for your education and ent- entertainment purposes only, so that as a responsible adult, you can use this show as a jumping-off point to do your own research and due diligence to make sure that what you're doing and what you're trying is right for you. Now, as I started, stated at the beginning of the show, it is November 22nd, 2023. This is the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. And I have a video that I want to play. It's all about uh, 2 minutes and 49 seconds long, which gives you a good indication of probably why they assassinated him. And let me get the um, streaming set up here. And I've got to figure out which one it is. (laughs) Um, Should be this one. Okay, here we go. President Kennedy speaking
1: the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society and we are as a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies to secret oaths and to secret proceedings we decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. It conducts the Cold War in short. With a wartime discipline, no democracy would ever hope or wish to match.
0: Short and sweet, but boy, I'll tell you what. Doesn't that uh, give you a good indication of what's going on right here in the U.S. of A. in this day and age? Sad, sad, sad situation. He was 46 years old. Wasn't perfect, but uh, pretty much was a pretty decent president and uh, was trying to do the right thing, I think. But we move along. And let me uh, get this out of the way here. Wanted to uh, take a look at some other things going on. We have the uh, International COVID Summit that just took place, I think it was the 19th, 20th, and 21st of this month, something like that. And this is a 22-minute video of Dr. Uh, Robert Malone discussing what's been going on and the millions of people that have died from the jabs.
2: here in front of you will come someone who doesn't need any presentation. He's now all over the world. Please, applause for Dr. Malone.
1: Formed the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic.
3: The vaccines are safe, I promise you. They are safe and effective. They are safe and effective.
4: If anyone chooses to not get vaccinated, there will be consequences. to welcome you from the International Crisis Summit. On behalf of the organizers, it's my pleasure to welcome all of you to the meeting of the Fourth International COVID Summit. I know that many of you traveled a long distance to attend, while others have come from across Europe and from here in Romania. The organizers thank you, all of you, for your commitment, time, and courage to participate, but we thank the members of the Romanian government who are providing both this beautiful venue and their generous support. Now I'm asked to remind all presenters to stay within your allotted time. Please keep in mind that both the portrait and the spirit of Vlad the Impaler is here in this building and we do not wish to have to call on him to enforce timelines. It seems simultaneously just yesterday and also a long time ago that the first international COVID summit was convened in Rome, Italy by invitation from a member of the Senate. So many things have changed since then. At that meeting, attendees were only allowed to speak about drug treatments, not about vaccine risks or effectiveness. This was the first major international meeting where physicians and scientists came together from across the world to compare notes and discuss successful ways to treat COVID and virtually eliminate hospitalization and death with a variety of early treatment protocols. The second ICS then followed in France and included discussion of masks, lockdowns, treatments, as well as vaccine concerns and was also a great success. The third ICS convened recently at the European Parliament in Brussels and video from that provided testimony has been viewed literally billions of times. With your help and support, I have no doubt that the 4th ICS will be another step forward in helping both Romania and the world make sense of what we have all experienced and point the way forward towards a better future for all of us. Now my introductory address, friends, Romanians, Physicians, lend me your ears. I come not to praise the top-down, authoritarian, centralized regulation of medicine, endorsed by the mandarins of finance, governments, globalist organizations, and massive non-governmental organizations, but rather to bury it. It has now been four full years since a novel coronavirus first infected the human community laboratory engineered for enhanced human infectivity and disease, development of which was funded by the U.S. government and performed by the U.S. medical-industrial complex working in cooperation with the Chinese Communist Party. Let's consider the most recent findings regarding the damage done by this top-down centralized approach. Skilled data scientists including Dr. Jessica Rose here today have recently estimated that excess United States deaths associated with the combination of non-pharmaceutical interventions and imposed medical interventions, which were neither safe nor effective, exceeded 500,000 U.S. citizens, 500,000 excess avoidable deaths because of government top-down policies. Propagandists in the U.S. government and CIA influence Johns Hopkins University tell us that there have been approximately 1 million U.S. deaths from disease associated with the Wuhan seafood market virus infection, the initial name given to this pathogen. These propagandists, in cooperation with a modeling team led by Dr. Neil Ferguson from the Imperial College in the U.K., have repeatedly told us that the case fatality rate of COVID-19 disease is 3.4%. This case fatality rate has been weaponized to justify jamming various drugs and, quote, vaccines through a highly abbreviated and corrupt, quote, emergency use authorization regulatory process, and then imposing these products, which have since proven to be neither safe nor effective, onto medical practitioners and the general public. These experimental products have been imposed in a centralized, top-down manner by a combination of censorship, psychological warfare propaganda, perverse financial incentives, suppression of bottom-up medical treatments developed and field-tested by practicing medical professionals, and targeted harassment and weaponization of the medical licensure process to attack and prevent any who have raised scientific and medical concerns from practicing medicine or participating in valid scientific discussions. In stark contrast, to these centralized authoritarian policies, data from Sweden, a country which had refused to mandate these top-down policies and which has been repeatedly ridiculed for not following these centralized globalist endorsed policies, demonstrates a SARS-CoV-2 case fatality rate of approximately 0.026%, not the 3.4%, coincidentally used in both the original fall 2019 Hopkins-CIA Gates Agenda 201 Plandemic Wargaming, as well as in the biased modeling results of the Neil Ferguson Imperial College modeling, 0.026% as opposed to 3.4%. Taking the actual Swedish data into consideration, skills data analysts have estimated the actual total U.S. death from COVID disease at 171,000, not 1 million. Let's take a moment to consider the history and current data current concerning the recently emergency use authorized, quote, booster products. There is no medical emergency at this time. The incidence of both disease and death associated with COVID-19 has essentially reached baseline. This is worldwide. The declaration of medical emergency in the United States was formally terminated in May, 2023. These products were designed based on advice from the FDA Verback committee, which last summer predicted that the SARS-CoV-2 strain dominating the upcoming fall season now would be the fearsomely named Kraken isolate. By the time these products were ready to be jammed through FDA regulatory authorization, the Kraken variant had been made extinct by the ARIS variant, which was more infectious, less susceptible to antibody neutralization, and was associated with clinical symptoms per the CDC, virtually indistinguishable from the common cold. Confronting the paradox of vaccine strain mismatch between Kraken and ARIS, FDA and CDC relied on immunized mouse serum samples and an unvalidated serum neutralization test to assert that the Kraken boosters were sufficiently cross-reactive to the ARIS variant without actually sharing the data and analyses with external reviewers to justify authorization and marketing this product to infants, children, adolescents, and adults. Just a short period after introduction of these products, a government-coordinated propaganda campaign in the United States has resulted in a total of 7% uptake of these products in U.S. adults and 2 to 3% uptake in the pediatric population. By the way, I call that a win. Now, under the selection pressure associated with global administration of these leaky vaccine products, we see evolution of a newly dominant variant, HV.1. This variant now paradoxically incorporates an element or epitope from the distant delta strain and is highly resistant to neutralizing antibodies. There are no data indicating that HV.1 is neutralized by antibodies elicited by the current Kraken booster. What this history demonstrates is that the modified mRNA vaccine platform, even with an FDA willing to bypass safety and efficacy norms, developed over decades of experience, and willing to jam products through a regulatory authorization process using, quote, emergency use authorization, still cannot keep up with a rapidly evolving RNA respiratory virus, which, as predicted, has become both more highly infectious, and relatively non-pathogenic. The centralized, authoritarian, global response to the entry of this engineered virus into the human population four years ago has clearly been an abysmal failure. Now let's consider the latest information about this technology and the purity of the vaccine products. When confronted by reporters from trial site news and Epic Times, the FDA has resorted to stonewalling. The FDA has issued a categorical denial of adulteration and risk, stating that, quote, no safety concerns related to the sequence of or amount of residual DNA in these, quote, vaccine products has been identified. The claim that the FDA is required to take any of the authorized or approved mRNA COVID-19 vaccines off the market is false, according to the FDA. With over a billion doses of the mRNA vaccines administered, no safety concerns relating to the sequence of, or amount of, residual DNA have been identified. With regard to the FDA-approved mRNA vaccines, available scientific evidence supports the conclusion they are safe and effective. This is the position of the FDA and, by the way, the European Medicines Agency and Health Canada. In contrast, multiple Moderna U.S. patents disclose that Moderna is aware of the genotoxicity risks of DNA when delivered into patients by highly active non-viral lipid nanoparticle delivery systems, and these risks include the risk of genotoxicity, resulting in, I'm quoting from Moderna's patents, quote, problems including the possibility of insertional mutagenesis, which could lead to the activation of oncogenes or the inhibition of tumor suppressor genes. That's Moderna's own words. In contrast to the perverse, obscene tragedy associated with this centralized, top-down approach, which has been endorsed and promoted by the mandarins of finance governments, globalist organizations, and massive non-governmental organizations, today you will hear presentations and testimony from physicians and scientists, today and tomorrow, demonstrating that the traditional bottom-up approach of focusing on treatment of symptoms by repurposing the existing pharmacopoeia to prevent disease and death from a highly inflammatory respiratory virus was far superior to the centralized top-down approach. If nothing else, due in large part to those with courage to speak scientific and medical truth to power, the world is increasingly becoming aware that the propaganda of the COVID crisis and the centralized top-down approach has been a fraud. In attempting to weaponize this fraud for a variety of purposes, including financial, we've all been subjected to the most amazing, centralized and globalized propaganda and psychological warfare campaign in modern history. Going forward, we're emerging into a postmodern surrealistic Information landscape where truth has become subject to a postmodern golden rule. Those with the gold make the rules. Permitted truth, quote unquote, has become entirely subjective, a distorted narrative propagated by public private partnerships. People here in Romania understand what that means, they understand fascism and they understand authoritarian, totalitarian governments, if anybody does. Between public-private partnerships, between governments, NGO and the intelligence community, and corporate media, this is a Mockingbird campaign. We have seen the modern embodiment of Operation Mockingbird, which has been in operation in the United States intelligence community since 1942. This is our opponent. Medical freedom and personal autonomy is certainly important, but even more important is freedom and personal sovereignty. When governments are willing and able to deploy modern cywar capabilities on their citizens, then election integrity becomes almost completely moot, and we are all at risk of becoming functionally lobotomized, indentured servants rather than independent individuals empowered to pursue our own destiny. Now, allow me just a brief additional moment to survey the published peer-reviewed literature relating to the human medical damages or adverse events associated with these products. I prepared, together with Dr. Jill Glasspool Malone, and curated a list of over 750 published peer-reviewed academic papers describing COVID genetic vaccine-related adverse events. Dr. Shrozzi has prepared a similar list with over 1,000 peer-reviewed references, which can be found on his website. The list of published adverse event types stands in stark contrast to the list of over 6,000 published and curated peer-reviewed publications, which focus on how to overcome vaccine hesitancy. 1,000 on adverse events, over 6,000 basically on propaganda coming from academia. The adverse event publications fall into the following broad categories, coagulopathy or blood clotting problems, immune issues, autoimmunity, Guillain-Barre syndrome, myopericarditis, non-stroke neurologic disease, ocular disease of the eyes, other adverse events including death, reproductive issues, rhabdomyolysis, this is destruction of muscle, stroke, tachycardia, rapid heartbeat, thrombocytopenia, reduced blood platelets, which contributes to the clotting problems, tinnitus, ringing in the ears, one of the most common adverse events, and transverse myelitis. This is damage to the spinal cord that causes paralysis below that level. It is past time to resist and bury these centralized totalitarian Authoritarian policies, which are being deployed to advance corporatist, globalist interests. And defense of medical freedom is a pretty good place to start. In closing, never forget the wisdom of St. Augustine. The truth is like a lion, and you do not need to defend it. Set it free, and it will defend itself. So be a lion, not a victim. Thank you for your time.
0: we've got another uh, short clip from that same conference that uh, specifically deals with the number of people who have died from these jabs. If I can get the little thing up here on my computer now. It's all of a minute and 11 seconds.
1: And so that's the computer About vaccines, so we're able to, from this work, we're able to calculate how many people would have died globally given that we've studied so many countries now. And we find that 17 million people were killed by the vaccines on the planet. That's our number. And I'm
5: going to ignore that because I want to show you Romania. This is the data for Romania by age group. This is the correlation between the vaccine rollouts in dark blue. And these huge peaks in excess mortality in Romania. There's no initial peak, but like you see in the Western countries, there's that one with the question mark that we have hypotheses about, and something very horrible happened in Romania to, to explain that. We have ideas about it. And then you have the vaccine deaths, and the last one is the booster. And so in Romania, we did a preliminary analysis of that booster. And it is killing you get one death per five or 10 injections in the 80 plus rolls in Romania from the boosters.
0: All righty then. Um, some interesting stuff, but they are, there are still people out there that are trying to shed light on this stuff. Uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny is one of those people. And, um, ah yes there we go it's from dr sherry tenpenny uh she's writing on substack as a midwestern doctor why does the government cover up vaccine injuries and before i get into that i just remembered i I wanted to say something i mentioned yesterday i might be doing a morning show tomorrow um won't be i won't be um something came up we were invited to my pastor's house which i didn't expect because he's been having some health issues but he called me this morning and said you coming for thanksgiving dinner <laughs> i said if you want us there i'll be we'll be there so i have to leave the house here probably about 10 30 11 o'clock tomorrow which would be right in the middle of the show so uh, that ain't gonna happen so no shows tomorrow at all no morning no afternoon we'll pick back up on monday and uh, but i just want to mention that real quick so uh spread the word i've already sent an email to a couple of folks that are normally there for the morning shows and uh, we'll take care of that but anyway back to dr tempetty's uh letter uh or substack on the the forgotten side of medicine why does the government cover up vaccine injuries (laughs) and again that goes right back to the uh, first video we played with doctor or with uh, president kennedy's speech anyway story at a glance something about vaccines e.g. their promise of a simple injection being sufficient to safely and effectively end all diseases, (laughs) a big lie, has always deeply appealed to the minds of government officials because they can make lots of money. Unfortunately, that promise is often a lie. Not often, it's always a lie. She's just being nice. So over and over, unsafe and ineffective vaccines enter the market, When this happens, the officials who are invested in them, yep, do everything they can to protect the vaccines from scrutiny and cover up each red flag that emerges, e.g. by silencing their own scientists. In previous decades, the press was much less corrupt than it is now, and occasionally would air real investigations into what happened. Yeah, if you remember the swine flu vaccine, 60 Minutes was all over that one. You know, they were saying, hey, these things aren't working, people are dying. And 50-some people, I think it was 53 people died, and they immediately jerked it from the market. Compare that with what we see today with the COVID jabs. This last video with a very conservative number of 17 million dead, and they're still out there preaching, they're safe and effective, get your jab, you'll be completely protected from COVID. Nothing but lies. Anyway, I collected many of them, which I hope you can watch because of how closely they match what is happening now since those tv programs made many who were suffering from the vaccine injuries realize they were not alone this created a massive pr problem for those officials which was eventually solved by preventing any future segments from airing (laughs) imagine that this article was written in the hope that collective amnesia could be broken Prior to COVID-19, few people knew that VAERS, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, existed. And when it was nonetheless brought up, it was often dismissed as an unreliable resource only the CDC or FDA was qualified to evaluate. Since so many people have been adversely affected by the COVID-19 jabs, this is in turn or this in turn brought an unparalleled amount of attention to VAERS and in turn brought every expert out of the woodwork to ridicule its validity and insist that VAERS overestimates vaccine harm, <laughs> when in reality VAERS severely underestimates it. Yeah, we've mentioned on this show several times, the most recent Harvard study shows that only 0.8% of all adverse events are ever reported to VAERS, less than 1%. So the number on VAERS are vastly underestimated if you've you know, we played a video in the last day or so that said a um, 118,000 children had been injured. Or, yeah, it was 118,000 children injured by the various jabs. And when you figure out that only 0.8% of all jabs or all adverse events are ever reported to VAERS, you would re- multiply that number by 100, and you come up with 11.8 million children injured or killed that's a little closer to reality given that VARES is the national early warning system to detect possible safety problems in the U.S. licensed vaccines it is quite strange that after more than 30 years no one has fixed it and made it into a reliable resource however when you consider the historical context behind VAERS the current situation makes a lot of sense in this series, I will review a few forgotten events, which, uh, which show just how far the government will go to cover up a deadly and ineffective vaccine, and just how similar those cover-ups were to what we've seen throughout the COVID vaccine campaign. First part, mass censorship. The Vietnam War was considered by many to be the event that broke the public's trust in the federal government. Eh, that's pretty close, I guess note many believe uh, that the specific event which turned the american public against the vietnam war was the My Lai massacre i'm going to make this a little bit bigger i hope oh nuts! it won't there we go okay the My Lai massacre an event where american soldiers decided to commit war crimes against vietnamese civilians until a different group of American soldiers on their own volition decided to stop the massacre. I went back and forth on explicitly detailing it in this article, as I believe it's critical to understand what war brings out in people. But I eventually decided it was too graphic for many of the readers. This loss of trust in the government, of course, alarmed the government, and led to the Pentagon conducting a coordinated campaign to prevent this from happening again, which was accomplished by, number one, ending the draft and switching to an all-volunteer army, two, ensuring the public was only fed a sanitized picture of what happened in each future war, e.g. with embedded journalists providing government-approved footage, and the mass media being strongly discouraged from providing any footage which exposed the horrors of each war note major colin Powell was one of the pentagon officers who led the effort to cover up the mili massacre he then rose through the ranks eventually becoming george bush's secretary of defense and infamously lied to the u.n about iraq's weapons of mass destruction a lie that killed hundreds of thousands of people and cost the u.s trillions of dollars Powell's case is one of many which illustrates how much the government regard or rewards those who cover up its atrocities. It is hard to even begin to describe how much work was put into hiding the horrors of the war from the public. And sadly it was remarkably effective transforming war from something much of the, some something much of the American public vehemently opposed to an abstract idea. They were largely apathetic towards note The best documentary I have seen explaining how military propaganda transformed as the decades went by is Why We Fight. Let me see if it is an actual link. Good. We'll take a look at that after this is over. In the medical field, a similar wave of mass censorship was uh, gradually was implemented, which likewise appeared to have... Uh, come from the recognition that the pharmaceutical industry could not afford for mainstream coverage to ever be given to the dangers of a pharmaceutical product, especially vaccines. In turn, many of the approaches which were pioneered to cover up the horrific human costs of our foreign wars were adopted by medical industrial complex, e.g. the same PR firms that relentlessly sell wars to America sold the COVID vaccines to us. Turning Points in Medical Censorship Numerous medical catastrophes have happened which provoked widespread public outrage and like the Vietnam War those events brought the government to conclude it was imperative the public was prevented from becoming aware of future medical atrocities. Some of those events include number one the polio vaccine. In 1955, after an expedited approval, a much-heralded vaccine was released by the government, and two weeks later, cases began emerging across America of children who had become paralyzed in the limb that was injected with the Salk polio vaccine. After some investigation, it was discovered that only two of the five vaccine manufactured had produced the same safe vaccines used in the clinical trials which meant many of the vaccines the public got, which at the time were a new experimental technology, had never been tested in humans. At the urging of Salk, when the vaccine was mass-produced, a different and less safe production process was used for the vaccine. Note this also happened with the COVID-19 vaccines, and and many now believe this is a key reason why they were so dangerous. Bernice, Bernice Eddy An NIH employee had immediately discovered that this mass-produced vaccine causes paralysis in monkeys. Note, Eddie had previously upset the NIH after she discovered that adenovirus vaccines cause cancers, which caused the NIH to put up innumerable obstacles to her work. But eventually, Eddie won, and adenovirus vaccines stopped being given to children, at least until COVID-19 as the J&J vaccine is a modified adenovirus. All of the paralyzing vaccines came from the same manufacturer, Cutter Laboratories. Note, later paralyzing lots were also identified from Wyeth, better known for making the highly dangerous DPT vaccine, but the general public was never made aware of it, which the head of the CDC's polio surveillance unit believed was done to prevent the public from realizing the polio vaccine is general uh, in general was unsafe and ineffective. The early FDA delegated testing of the vaccine for the safety of the vaccine manufacturers rather than doing so itself. (laughs) There were many safety concerns. With the testing of the salt vaccine, but the professional publications who uh, chose to censor them, and instead continually repeated the message that the vaccine was completely safe and effective. Gee, where have we heard that before? The public was understandably outraged about this. The government found itself in a public relations crisis, and numerous lawsuits dragged out against Cutter in the courts. In response to this happening, the federal government then decided to assume a direct involvement in each aspect of the vaccine program, thus switching from being a largely neutral external auditor to being a major stakeholder. As you might guess, this conflict of interest made the government be motivated to cover up any safety issues with its vaccines, e.g. to protect its investment or to uh, not look bad in the public then before long business as usual resumed with the polio vaccine to quote turtles all the way down perhaps the most disturbing element from the entire program has been the disparity between the risks that were known to be involved with and the repeated assurance of safety paul meyer professor of epidemiology at john hopkins university school of public health the national foundation in a memo sent to doctors also stated emphatically that the polio vaccine was completely safe, and that the risk of ensuing paralysis was zero. The best way to push forward a new program is to decide on what you think the best decision is and not question it thereafter, and further, not to raise questions before the public or expose the public to open discussion of the issue. Paul Meyer speaking at an expert panel on the vaccine. In 1960, five years after the Cutter incident, Bernice Eddy, an NIH employee, had determined that the polio vaccines were contaminated with a cancer-causing virus, SV40, we've heard of that many, many times, and not fit to give to the public. When she alerted her superiors, she was ordered to not disclose it, so the public would not lose its trust in the vaccine program, but eventually decided to publish her findings at a cancer conference after which the, uh, after which she was immediately demoted and lost her lab. <laughs> Gee, imagine that. You, th- you say things they don't like, and they deal with you negatively, and if you cover things up, they promote you to high, high levels. Note, in 1959, government officials have become aware their vaccine caused cancer and were frantically trying to find a way to address it. The problem was ultimately a product of cutting costs, by producing the vaccines with imported monkey kidneys while uh, while simultaneously doing all they could to promote them to the public. As time moved forwards, more evidence emerged showing that there was a widespread contamination in the polio vaccines with the SV40 virus. Finally, in 1963, the federal government forced the vaccine manufacturers to stop growing the vaccine on contaminated SV40 monkey kidneys at which point between 40 and 98 million americans and many more globally were infected although a case can be made sv40 was present until around the year 2000 in some of the vaccines and they're also popping up in the covid jabs imagine that Note, while U.S. health authorities declared SV40 does not cause cancer in humans, many accounts exist of physicians who observed an explosion of cancer after the polio vaccines hit the market. I believe this theory is valid, as one of the most common therapies we've found, which consistently helps solid tumors, which are what SV40 was suspected to cause, appears to function as an antidote to the SV40 virus. More recently, it was discovered that the reckless method that was chosen to quickly mass-produce the COVID vaccines resulted in them being contaminated with the promoter region of SV40 virus, which many in turn suspect is carcinogenic. Additionally, many horrible kidney diseases are strongly associated with SV40 and likewise have exploded in incidence since the polio vaccines hit the market. Sadly, since SV40 was introduced to the population through the vaccine program and transmits between humans and fetuses, there has been a general reluctance to study its danger or to acknowledge it was still present in the vaccine supply decades later. For those interested, this is the for those didn't edit properly. This excellent 28-minute video. video 28 minute video by Dr. Suzanne Humphrey, someone I greatly admire, describes what happens. Yeah, we got some time. Let's take a look at this.
6: The question that arose fairly early for me was why do doctors know next to nothing about what aluminum does inside the body? What other misinformation and gaping holes in knowledge do doctors have? And had anyone ever written about the problems with vaccination? Was I trailblazing or were there physicians who had gone before me and had endured similar resistance? I was treated by the hospital administration as an outlier with radical and unwanted views. To my astonishment, close scrutiny of medical and vaccine history showed plenty of other outliers, not just Semmelweis and Oliver Wendell Holmes of purple fever infamy. When it comes to vaccination issues, it's useful to know about the following whistleblowers. The first outlier on my list is Sir Graham Wilson, who wrote a book called The Hazards of Immunization in 1967. Of course, I never knew of this book in my conventional years. Sir Graham Wilson was not a nobody, nor was he considered a quack. Though he does say that he was once totally ignorant, the book was a revelation, not just because of its content, but because of the fact that Sir Wilson was only able to write the book because of contributions from people that he mentions in the preface and the introduction. First, he talks about how the anti-vaccinationists he heard of were highly emotional and irrational people. But then he learned of an opposition that had sprung up amongst scientific workers who were moved by factual evidence. He thanks a former director from Wellcome Pharmaceutical Labs, Dr. R.A. O'Brien, who had amassed records of various vaccine disasters which he felt unable to cope with and handed them over to Sir Graham, who said that it was doubtful whether the book would have been possible without those records. He mentions other people who helped him dig out long-overlooked journals that were not obtainable elsewhere. This is what Roman and I had to do in order to write our book. So, how are practicing doctors supposed to know about vaccine problems if the literature is buried in basements and then books like Sir Graham's are tossed out from medical libraries? Sir Graham mentions a lecturer a top health officer who was totally ignorant of the long series of vaccine accidents in the late 1800s and early 1900s because of almost complete absence of information in textbooks. Sir Graham says the large majority of accidents have never been reported in print. Why not? He says for fear of compensation claims or of giving a weapon to the anti-vaccinationists. It's risky for any medical doctor to reveal unpublished material, but it's downright dangerous to talk as an industry scientist, which is also why R.A. O'Brien waited so long after his retirement to give Wellcome's disaster files to Sir Graham Wilson. Unfortunately, because most scientists never talk, the arrogance of ignorance is prevalent in academia as well. The same situation exists today, which is why medical students and doctors are in the dark. According to Sir Graham Wilson, there were many more reports of injury and death in soldiers from vaccines than any of us know about, because they are not mentioned in the medical literature, but remained hidden in the records of vaccine manufacturers. About the same time as Sir Graham was writing his book, a doctor by the name of Joseph Anthony Morris, who worked for the Division of Biological Standards in Bethesda, Maryland, was involved in an internal struggle which would later become the subject of a published Senate inquiry. This quote can be seen on the internet. But how many people know about Dr. Morris, who is undoubtedly one of the most important whistleblowers ever to have worked at the FDA? His work has considerable historic and medical significance. The uptake of the first influenza vaccine in 1945 was very poor. Dr. Morris was headhunted by the Division of Biological Standards because of the outstanding nature of his research skills. One of his jobs was evaluation of the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. However, Dr. Morris did not turn in results favorable to the flu vaccine. When he tested it on the Caroline Islands in different populations, he found that the effectiveness was anywhere between 0% and 40%. He reported to his superiors that the vaccines lacked potency and that the side effects were significant. To his astonishment, his superiors ignored those results and released the vaccines as safe and effective. This continued between 1963 and 1970. Dr. Morris was harassed, silenced, and demoted, forced to destroy thousands of lab animals and hand over all of his records. Publications of his results were blocked, his door lock was changed, the phone removed, and visitors were screened. Like today's Merck whistleblowers, Dr. Morris said that the DBS used dubious techniques to test the vaccines and that the results were tampered with, which permitted the watered-down vaccines to be falsely labeled as more potent than they were. Unhappy that he was unable to protect the public, Dr. Morris decided to take action. Because he wasn't prepared to accept anything other than scientific fact, While his bosses ran interference to shore up the profits of drug companies, Dr. Morris hired a lawyer and went to the Senate. The result was a well-publicized hearing. In memoranda leading up to that hearing, it became obvious that other scientists were also harassed to the point where they were forced to leave the DBS. The Senate hearing S3419 in 1972 was conducted at the highest level and vaccine irregularities were investigated. The hearing covered many topics raised by Dr. Morris, including SV40, flu vaccines, and the 32 useless vaccines listed here that were licensed and released by the DBS 20 years prior to this hearing. How these vaccines were made and what exactly was in them is anyone's guess. The information you see here was given to the Senate hearing by Dr. Peter Isaacson. Those vaccines, as a result of the hearing, were taken off the market. But Dr. Isaacson made a pertinent observation that the 32 vaccines were known to cause serious side effects and that the dollar value of vaccines sold was astronomical. Dr. Isaacson also noted on page 349 of the public record, that physicians and scientists have a very marked discipline conceit and seem to think they can make all sorts of judgments on anything that is beyond their training. And before someone accuses me of doing the same, My comments today are based on years of real education, so that now, I have what I talk about in my hand in black and white. The only reason we know about the vaccine issues in the Congressional hearing in 1972 was because Dr. Tony Morris, who was about to be kicked out of the DBS for insisting that scientific principles and methods regarding vaccines be adhered to, decided to go public. According to sworn public testimony given in S3419, memos were quietly exchanged inside the bureaucracy over dangerous vaccines and ineffective drugs. Yet nothing was done to protect the public. The Senate record also included statements from other harassed DBS scientists who had less courage than Dr. Morris but were still prepared to give evidence to the Senate. The DBS tried but failed to fire Dr. Morris after legal challenge. As a result of the Senate hearing, the DBS was remodeled into what we know today as the FDA, and Dr. Morris was transferred there. Unfortunately, that change was just a cosmetic facelift. If you would like to listen to some videos of Dr. Morris from after he retired at the FDA, please go here. If you read the news today about whistleblowers from Merck and from the CDC, you can see that nothing has really changed. After his transfer to the FDA, Influenza was still Dr. Morris's specialty. In February 1976 in Fort Dix, New Jersey, a swine flu strain was found in a soldier who died during a march. Dr. Morris was asked to help with the investigation at the same time that there was a manufactured scare over the possibility of another 1918 flu pandemic striking. But Dr. Morris found that the virus the soldier died with was just an ordinary pig virus, not a pandemic virus. It rarely infected person to person. He also found in prior years that the 1918 flu was caused by PR8, another strain of influenza that was discovered in Puerto Rico many years before. The vaccine that was created for swine flu was a hybrid between PR8 and swine flu. Why? Because they couldn't make a vaccine with that swine flu strain because it grew too slowly. So the slow-growing swine flu strain was hybridized with PR8, which meant the swine flu vaccine virus took on the fast-growing properties of the dangerous 1918 virus and the viral antigen used in the swine flu vaccine wasn't the ordinary pig strain from the soldier, but a fast-growing hybrid. It turned out that the vaccine was both ineffective and unsafe. Again, his bosses wouldn't listen to him and told him to shut up. So he went on the Phil Donahue show and gave public lectures stating his findings. Forty million people were vaccinated. The injuries Dr. Morris predicted were a sad reality. Hundreds were reported to be paralyzed and dozens died. Guillain-Barre syndrome was a reality from the flu vaccines. The father of infectious disease epidemiology, Dr. Alexander Langmuir, confirmed that causation. By 1982, there were 1,571 lawsuits filed just for swine flu vaccine victims. This fiasco cost the government untold millions. The one thing they couldn't say was that Dr. Morris didn't try to warn anyone. The swine flu program was stopped, but not before 46 million doses of that vaccine was sold to the public. How people responded depended on their agendas. The organized crime underworld took Dr. Morris very seriously and saw an opportunity to change the power base of the Mafia. Infamous mob boss Carlo Gambino took a flu shot just before he died. Apparently someone from a rival mob heard one of Dr. Morris's lectures on the side effects. Knowing that Gambino had a heart problem and having heard that the shot was potentially dangerous for such people, a Gambino insider was persuaded to convince Gambino to take the swine flu shot which is widely believed to have pushed him into his grave. Make of that what you want. Many pro-vaccine people today consider the 1975 swine flu vaccine incident to be much ado about nothing. However, if you talk to older adults who lived in the cities where that vaccine was widely administered, you'll see that most of those people know of, or have a family member that was affected by that vaccine. The third outlier whistleblower you should know about is Dr. Bernice Eddy, also mentioned in the Senate hearing about Dr. Morris. Dr. Eddy and Dr. Morris worked on the same floor of the National Institutes of Health and were colleagues and friends. You may have heard of her work in discovering problems with the Salk polio vaccine, but did you ever hear about the early adenovirus vaccines? At her memorial service, Dr. Morris said, One of our shared interests was the fact that adenovirus vaccines were capable of producing tumors in animals. Pursuit of this work did not receive enthusiastic support from the NIH administrators. Every obstacle placed in the path of this work was, for Dr. Eddy, an obstacle to be overcome. The result was a discontinuance of the use of adenovirus vaccines in children. Dr. Eddy was the first to notice that Salk's polio vaccine after mass manufacture was paralyzing monkeys. Her report was ignored and the result of that was the infamous and misnamed Cutter incident. But the story of the cancer virus is even more shocking. Because their kidneys turned out to be a convenient source of cells for growth and amplification of poliovirus, rhesus monkeys were imported to the United States by the millions for slaughter and experimentation through the 1950s and the 1960s. Dr. Eddy noticed that monkey kidney cell cultures would often degenerate spontaneously even when kept under the most favorable conditions for cell survival. She suspected an unknown virus. In 1959 she skimmed cell-free liquid from the surface of monkey kidney cell cultures and injected that into newborn hamsters. Less than four months later, the majority, 70% of them, developed tumors. The experiment was repeated in generations of hamsters with the same results. Administrative clearance for publication of this important 1959 finding was not granted until scientists at Merck had recovered previously undetected virus in monkey kidney cell lines they were using to make polio vaccine. Samples of this virus were given to Dr. Eddy, who injected them into newborn hamsters and obtained identical results to those she had obtained in cell-free extracts three years earlier. She found that the virus-induced sarcomas in hamsters not only at the subcutaneous injection site of viral inoculation, but also at a distance in the lungs and in the kidneys. When people think of polio vaccines in the 1950s, they think of the hero Dr. Salk and the miraculous vaccine because the media made sure that that was how history would remember it. But from 1959 through 1961, government health officials were frantically seeking means to remove a tumor inducing factor from polio vaccines. At the same time, these health officials were also vigorously conducting a campaign to inject contaminated polio vaccines into millions of people without telling them that it contained a tumor-inducing factor. That factor has been referred to today by one of the world's leading virologists as the perfect war machine. The Division of Biologic Standards used very similar silencing and intimidation tactics on Dr. Eddy as they did on Dr. Morris. Her laboratory was downsized, and her staff was removed. She had to develop innovative and time-saving ways of completing her work. So she, too, was shut down for her findings instead of rewarded for potentially saving many innocent people from being injected with cancer viruses. Why is Dr. Eddie important to me? That monkey virus was called SV40. And today, you can read in medical journals about the tumors and kidney diseases that have been associated with that cancer-inducing virus. SV40 is something that all nephrologists should know about, but for some reason they don't. SV40 is found in both healthy and sick people of all ages today. But people with a specific type of glomerular disease called focal and segmental glomerulosclerosis, or FSGS, which is very difficult to treat, are more likely to have SV40 in their kidneys. Ask any nephrologist about the toxic drugs used to treat FSGS and what the cure rate is and how frustrating it is for doctors and patients alike. It is documented widely in medical literature that this kidney trophic virus came from polio vaccines in the 1950s and 1960s and since then has been documented to circulate in the human population. Humans can pass it to each other, and we can also pass it to our children before birth. Nephrologists today don't know much about SV40 because they're interested more in two related polyomaviruses, called BK and JC, which become active in people given a transplant who have their immune systems suppressed. The possible role of SV40 in FSGS just doesn't come on their radar, but... FSGS is a leading cause of idiopathic nephrotic syndrome and most people with the disease eventually require dialysis. FSGS as a percent of the underlying disease among dialysis patients has increased 11-fold from 0.2% in 1980 to 2.3% in 2000. Just to give you a visual of what FSGS is, look at these images. A single kidney contains around 1 million nephrons, and each nephron has a filter. The circular images shown here are glomeruli, or filters in real life. They're spherically shaped. What you're looking at are stained cross-section images from human kidneys. The first one is normal, and the second and third ones show FSGS problems, which are obvious even to the untrained eye. The filters are not functioning properly, and proteins that should remain in the body leak out into the urine instead. Because of that, FSGS is associated with several other derangements in the body, like high blood pressure, edema, and lipid alterations. While SV40 virus is found in both healthy and sick people, it is known that a certain antigen from SV40 virus results in FSGS in experimental mice. We also know that human kidney is a reservoir of more than one strain of SV40 virus and that people with kidney disease tend to have higher rates of SV40 viral shedding. This slide shows the rate of SV40 presence in urine and kidney of FSGS patients, patients with other kidney disease and of normal healthy people. You can appreciate that the FSGS people have far higher rates of SV40 positivity. Just looking at urine excretion, you can see 41% of FSGS, 10% of other kidney disease, and only 4% of normals have SV40 positivity. Kidney biopsies, as previously shown, have the highest rates of infection in FSGS sufferers. We have seen a considerable increase in FSGS in kidneys between the 1970s and the late 1990s, which continues on today. Nephrologists see so much kidney injury from drugs like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, antibiotics, chemotherapy, and in my and others' experience, even vaccines. Research in animals and humans shows that SV40 can initiate kidney injury and can also render kidneys susceptible to injury. Most people recover clinically after drug insults, but how many patients are susceptible to drug-induced kidney damage because they harbor variants of SV40 in the kidney? SV40 is also thought to reactivate as a result of kidney inflammation and with kidney injury from various toxins. This is an area of research that is largely untouched. Medical articles state that SV40 virus was in vaccines only up until 1963. But Rizzo and Carboni in 1999 showed that with better testing, SV40 could have been detected in seed stock for vaccine manufacture long after 1963. Attorney Stanley Copps in 2000 gave evidence from legal documents that there was no guarantee that SV40 was not in Letterly's polio vaccines up until the year 2000 when Copps wrote his article. FSGS as we have just seen is a serious potential consequence of SV40 but equally troubling is the potential for malignant kidney transformation in those who harbor SV40. Malignant transformation of normal cells infected with SV40 is a proven reality. Enders and Shine published in the 1960s that SV40 virus causes pathology and transforms human kidney cells in culture. That means that it causes disease and cancer in those cells. And Dr. Eddy showed that hamsters injected with SV40 developed kidney tumors. After 1964, the medical literature is devoid of SV40 kidney cancer research. But kidney cancers rose significantly after 1964. Look at this astonishing increase in incidence of kidney cancer in the UK. Similar trends are documented in Europe, Canada, and the USA. You may be saying correlation doesn't equal causation. Certainly, other cofactors may exist, but the research of Dr. Eddy and the finding that SV40 transforms human kidney cells is compelling. Causation was considered by Mortimer et al. In 1981 in a New England Journal of Medicine article which summarized the results of the largest cohort of SV40 exposed children. Over 1,000 of those children were followed. They had actually traced 87% of that population of those children in 1981. Mortimer's concluding sentence says that because of mounting complexities and obstacles in tracing the subjects, cancer surveillance was terminated when they were teenagers. According to Dr. Anthony Morris, that would not have been the time to stop this study, but really to start it. Have vaccines anything to do with this trend we see as nephrologists? Because I can tell you, nephrologists and urologists have never been so busy, and business has never been so good as it is today. If you want to know why there are so many gaps in knowledge over SV40 in cancers, like kidney cancers, Ask Drs. Key and Carboni. According to them and others, the controversy over the implications of SV40 damage has paralyzed the scientific research. Drs. Key and Carboni also said that SV40 was in Italy's polio vaccine supply up until 1999. Dr. Carboni expressed his thoughts about the suppression of his findings over SV40, and tumors in an interview to Bookchin and Schumacher. Unfortunately, as doctors Eddie and Morris would tell you if they were here, you certainly can be punished for talking science, especially if it might make the public less willing to have blind faith in the safety of all vaccine programs. Let's look at another concern of mine. In order to make enough flu vaccine to vaccinate the world and do it quickly, a new way of making flu vaccines had to be developed. Making them on chick embryos, which is the old way, is too slow and time-consuming. So the new solution is Cocker Spaniel kidney cells, which were first cultured in 1958 by Maiden and Darby. Those same cells have become mysteriously immortalized. More recently, a sanitized term has been used, continuous cell lines. These cells are now deemed safe for human vaccine production. The FDA says nobody knows just how these cells were made immortal. I can only speculate, but the textbooks clearly state that an oncogenic transformation occurred and that there has been chromosomal mutation. This particular vaccine substrate just happens to be tumorigenic in humans as stated by FDA personnel. These are screenshots from FDA documents stating that neoplastic maiden Darby cells are used in flu vaccine production and that those cells may cause tumors in recipients. They say if the cell is not intact, it will not likely be a problem. But other FDA documents, such as Peden and the panel discussion among scientists in that paper, documents the real concerns discussed behind closed doors at FDA meetings regarding transferring even nanogram amounts of genetic material via injections. Tumorogenic made-in-Darby kidney cells are now used to make flu vaccines distributed in the USA, which brings me to the most recent whistleblowers. If anyone thinks hidden vaccine problems, like Dr. Morris reporting that the DBS lied about flu vaccine potency, DBS and Merck scientists finding SV40 and polio vaccines are all in the past, think again. Two of Merck's own scientists today are suing under the False Claims Act, saying that Merck lied about the potency of its mumps vaccine. The lawsuit documents list Merck's alleged efforts to defraud the United States through Merck's ongoing scheme to sell the government a mumps vaccine that is mislabeled, misbranded, adulterated, and falsely certified as having an efficacy rate that is significantly higher than it actually is. Merck allegedly did this from 2000 onwards, in order to maintain its exclusive license to sell the MMR vaccine and keep its monopoly of the U.S. market. Merck attempted to have the case thrown out. It's pretty amazing when you think of the money and the medical and political power that Merck's lawyers have, yet not one of them could come up with an argument to convince the judge to dismiss the case. When you read the judgment you get the feeling that Merck's lawyers really annoyed him. Science in the world of Merck vaccines could mean throwing out results that don't fit the desired outcome. It could mean throwing out evidence before the FDA comes to inspect. It could mean offering bonuses to scientists to deliver the necessary results. But what do you expect when you have the vaccine manufacturers in charge of proving that their own vaccine is potent? Science in the general vaccine research world includes placebos that are vaccines, or placebos that are carrier fluid with aluminum. Studies done on healthy people under optimal circumstances, and then those results are applied to everyone. Other outspoken journal reviewers and scientists admit that results favorable to the vaccines are built into the study designs. Anyone who has written a funding application knows that to receive money, you have to be pretty convinced that you can produce results that will enhance the aims and objectives of the financier. I knew none of this as a nephrologist, because the system makes sure that medical students don't even think to look for information that might warn them that not all is well with these one-size-fits-all vaccines. Yet that information is right under their eyes if they only knew where to look. Of course, the CDC and FDA would prefer that we all just relax and believe the authorities are looking out for us. When is the ignored science going to be taken seriously? It never will, so long as people who talk about problems are called outliers and then hounded, vilified, character assassinated, and said to have psychological problems.
0: Ooh, lots of good stuff there. And I put a bunch of uh, screenshots from that video in the chat room, as well as um, I downloaded the Federal Register that, they, uh, that is shown below here. One of the most important takeaways from the polio fiasco was an admission by the FDA made into the, current, the Federal Register that any doubts regarding the safety of a vaccine, regardless of their validity, could not be allowed to exist as that would make less people get the vaccine. And uh, right below there, it actually shows a, a screenshot that they put in. I've also downloaded that on entire federal register. It was like 280 pages or something. Found that page and highlighted it, made a screenshot, and put it in the uh, chat room as well. Note this policy was likely made in response to concerns that the specific polio vaccines, which later paralyzed, were not the ones that have been tested in clinical trials. Sadly, the FDA's solution was to simply stop testing all vaccine lots. Then we have the swine flu fiasco. When the earliest influenza vaccines hit the market in 1945, they received minimal interest from the public. Joseph Anthony Morris, Ph.D., was recruited in by the early FDA to conduct the research to prove those vaccines were safe and effective, eventually leading him to becoming the FDA's chief vaccine control officer. Yet after he found that they were ineffective, only working from zero to maybe 40% of the time, and again, how do you know that just because somebody didn't get the flu, it was a result of the vaccine? (laughs) You know, you can't prove a negative You know, that's the thing. It was like, oh, I got, the vac- I got the vaccine and I never got the flu. Well, try not getting the vaccine and see what happens and see if you get the flu next time or, or not. But still, there's no guarantees that it was the vaccine that did the, kept you from getting it. Anyway, uh, yet he found that the they were ineffective, only working 0 to 40% of the time and unsafe. His superiors ignored his, his data and released the vaccines while claiming they were safe and effective. And that's been going on for years and years and years. Like Bernice Eddy, he also faced significant retaliation, being harassed, demoted, losing access to his lab and blocked from publishing his results. Before being fired, Morris decided to fight the FDA's gross misconduct by hiring a lawyer and going to the Senate. He promoted a 1972 Senate hearing, which concluded the issues Morris uh, raised were only a tip of the iceberg and as a result of the hearing, 32 unsafe un- and unproven vaccines were taken off the market. Most importantly, the FDA's progenitor, called the DBS, conduct uh, was, de- was deemed so egregious that it was, a- was scrapped and replaced with the modern FDA, which unfortunately did not fix the rot within the agency. Imagine that. Vaccine machine can swine flu whistleblower and there's a little article about it Um, when he presented evidence that swine or the flu vaccine was largely ineffective he was relieved of his vaccine control duties when he suggested that slow viruses might be contaminating vaccines his work on the project was stopped (laughs) good grief and by the way i put a link to this article in the chat room and it's also on my telegram channel after being transferred to the new FDA, where he was promoted from termination due to the uh, or protected from termination, excuse me, uh, due to the recent Senate investigation, he continued to be responsible for influenza. And, all, uh, and in 19, uh, February of 1976, a swine flu strain was found in a soldier who died in March. As the FDA tried to drum up fear about the new 1918 influenza, Morris was called into the investigation and concluded that swine flu strain was not something to be concerned about, as it was rarely traveled from person to person. Note, as far as I know, the two deadliest plagues in human history were the Black Death, of which I still, um, is still not known. Uh, Much is still not known. And the 1918 influenza, because of the 1918 influenza, the medical community became fixated on preventing anything like it from happening again. And, of course, they can't do it by uh, educating people on supporting their immune system naturally. They have to do it by a way that kills people and makes lots and lots of money for them and the drug companies. Imagine that which amongst the other other things resulted in enormous influenza vaccination apparatus flooding america which sadly has injured many but consistently failed to provide any benefit since that swine flu strain reproduced slowly it was not feasible to protect enough uh to produce enough of it to make the vaccine before the pandemic faded into memory so someone had a truly astounding idea why not hybridize it with a fast-growing 1918 influenza, as this provided a way to meet the vaccine production timeline it was supposed to be supported by the government? And this is pretty much a continuation of what uh, Dr. Um, uh, Humphreys was saying in that video. And let's see, in the same way, it was remarkable that uh, the Donahue show was willing to publicly give a platform to Dr. Morris's concerns, Consider the segment 60 Minutes aired across America and how eerily it parallels what happened decades later when the COVID-19 vaccines. So let's take a look at this one.
7: (laughs) The flu season is upon us. Which type will we worry about this year? And what kind of shots will we be told to take? Remember the swine flu scare of 1976? That was the year the U.S. government told us all that swine flu could turn out to be a killer that could spread across the nation. And Washington decided that every man, woman, and child in the nation should get a shot to prevent a nationwide outbreak, a pandemic. Well, 46 million of us obediently took the shot. And now 4,000 Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to three and a half billion dollars because of what happened when they took that shot. By far the greatest number of the claims, two-thirds of them, are for neurological damage or even death, allegedly triggered by the flu shot. We pick up the story back in 1976 when the threat posed by the swine flu virus seemed very real indeed.
8: This virus was the cause of a pandemic in 1918 and 1919 that resulted in over half a million deaths in the United States, as well as 20 million deaths around the world. See how easy it is to...
7: Protect Thus, the U.S. government's flu. publicity machine was cranked into action to urge all America to protect itself against the swine flu menace. Influenza is serious business. During major flu epidemics, millions of people are sick, and thousands die. Well, this year, you can get protection. The vaccines are safe, easy to take, and they can protect you against flu. So roll up your sleeve. Protect yourself. One of those who did roll up her sleeve was Judy Roberts. She was perfectly healthy, an active woman, when in November of 1976, she took her shot. Two weeks later, she says, she began to feel a numbness starting up her legs.
9: I joked about it at that time. I said, I'll be numb to the knees by Friday if this keeps up. By the following week, I was totally paralyzed.
7: So completely paralyzed, in fact, that they had to operate on her to enable her to breathe. And for six months, Judy Roberts was a quadriplegic. The diagnosis? A neurological disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS for short. These neurological diseases are little understood. They affect people in different ways. As you can see in these home movies taken by a friend, Judy Roberts' paralysis confined her mostly to a wheelchair for over a year. But this disease can even kill Indeed, there are 300 claims now pending from the families of GBS victims who died, allegedly as a result of the swine flu shot. In other GBS victims, the crippling effects diminish and all but disappear. But for Judy Roberts, progress back to good health has been painful and partial. Now, I notice that your smile, Judy, is a little bit constricted.
9: Yes, it
7: is. Is it different from what it used to be?
9: Very different. I have uh, a greatly decreased mobility in my lips and uh, I can't drink through a straw on the right hand side, I can't blow out birthday candles, uh, I don't whistle anymore for which my husband is grateful.
7: It may be a little difficult for you to answer this question, but have you recovered as much as you are going to recover?
9: Yes, this, this is it.
7: So you will now have a legacy of braces on your legs for the rest of your life?
9: Yes the weakness in my hands will stay and the leg braces will stay.
7: So Judy Roberts and her husband have filed a claim against the US government. They're asking 12 million dollars, though they don't expect to get nearly that much. Judy, why did you take the flu shot?
9: I'd never taken any other flu shots, but I felt like this was going to be a major epidemic. And the only way to prevent a major epidemic of a, a really deadly variety of flu was for everybody to be immunized.
7: Where did this so-called deadly variety of flu, where did it first hit back in 1976? It began right here at Fort Dixon, New Jersey in January of that year when a number of recruits began to complain of respiratory ailments, something like the common cold. An army doctor here sent samples of their throat cultures to the New Jersey Public Health Lab to find out just what kind of bug was going around here. One of those samples was from a private David Lewis who had left his sickbed to go on a forced march. Private Lewis had collapsed on that march, and his sergeant had revived him by mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But the sergeant showed no signs of illness. A few days later, Private Lewis died.
9: If this disease is so potentially fatal that it's going to kill a young, healthy man, a middle-aged school teacher doesn't have prayer.
7: The New Jersey lab identified most of those soldiers' throat cultures as the normal kind of flu virus going around that year, but they could not make out what kind of virus was in the culture from the dead soldier and from four others who were sick. So they sent those cultures to the Federal Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia for further study. A few days later they got the verdict, swine flu. But that much publicized outbreak of swine flu at Fort Dix involved only Private Lewis who died and those four other soldiers who recovered completely without the swine flu shot.
9: If I had known at that time that the boy had been in a sick bed, got up, went out on a forced march, and then collapsed and died, I would never have taken a shot.
10: The rationale for our recommendation was not on the basis of the death of uh, a single individual. But it was on the basis that when we do see a change in the characteristics of the influenza virus, it is a massive uh, public health problem in this country.
7: Dr. David Sensor, then head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, is now in private industry. He devised the swine flu program, and he pushed it. You began to give flu shots to the American people in October of 76. October 1st. By that time, how many cases of swine flu around the world had been reported? There had been uh, several reported but none
10: confirmed. There had been cases in uh, uh, Australia that were reported by the press, uh, by the news media,
7: there were cases in... uh, None confirmed. Did you ever uncover any other outbreaks of swine flu? Anywhere in the world? No. Now nearly everyone was to receive the shot in a public health facility where a doctor might not be present. Therefore, it was up to the CDC to come up with some kind of official consent form, giving the public all the information it needed about the swine flu shot. This form stated that the swine flu vaccine had been tested. What it didn't say was that after those tests were completed, the scientists developed another vaccine, and that was the one given to most of the 46 million who took the shot. That vaccine was called X53A. Was X53A ever field-tested?
10: uh... i... i can't say i would have to uh... it wasn't what i don't know
7: well, i would think that you're in charge of the program i would have to check uh... the records i haven't uh, looked at this in some time the information form the consent form was also supposed to warn people about any risks of serious complications following the shot but did it
9: no i had never heard of any reactions other than a sore arm fever this sort of thing.
7: Judy Roberts' husband, Gene, also
9: took the shot.
1: Yes, I looked at that document. I signed it. Nothing on there said I was going to have a heart attack, or I get Guillain-Barre, which I never heard of.
7: What if people from the government, from the Center for Disease Control, what if they had indeed known about it? What would be your feeling?
9: They should have told us.
7: Did anyone ever come to you and say, you know something, fellas? There's the possibility of neurological damage if you get into a mass immunization program? No. No one ever did? No. Do you know Michael Hatwick? Yes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Hatwick directed the surveillance team for the swine flu program at the CDC. His job was to find out what possible complications could arise from taking the shot and to report his findings to those in charge. Did you know ahead of time, Dr. Hatwick, that there had been case reports of neurological disorders, neurological illness, apparently associated with the injection of influenza vaccine? Absolutely. You did? Yes. How'd you know that? By review of the literature. So you told your superiors, the men in charge of the swine flu immunization program, about the possibility of neurological disorders? Absolutely. What would you say if I told you that your superiors say that you never told them about the possibility of neurological complications?
1: That's nonsense. I can't believe that they would say that they did not know that there were neurological illnesses associated with influenza vaccination. That simply is not true. We did know that.
10: I've said that Dr. Hatwick had never told me of uh, his feelings on this subject. That uh, he's lying. I
7: guess you would have to um, make that assumption. Then why does this report from your own agency dated July 1976 lists neurological complications as a possibility. I think the uh,
10: consensus of uh, the scientific community was that the evidence relating neurologic disorders to influenza immunization that they did not feel that this association
7: was a real one. You didn't feel it was necessary to tell the people that information?
10: Uh, I think that uh, over the the years, we have tried to inform the American people as, as fully as possible.
7: As part of informing Americans about the swine flu threat, Dr. Sensor's CDC also helped create the advertising to get the public to take the shot. Let me read to you from one of your own agency's memos planning the campaign to urge Americans to take the shot. The swine flu vaccine has been taken by many important persons, he wrote. Example, President Ford. Henry Kissinger, Elton John, Muhammad Ali, Mary Tyler Moore, Rudolph Nureyev, Walter Cronkite, Ralph Nader, Edward Kennedy, etc., etc. True? Uh, I'm not familiar with that particular
10: piece of paper, uh, but I do know that at least of that group, President Ford did take the vaccination.
7: Did you talk to these people beforehand to find out if they planned to take the shot? I did not know. Did anybody? I do not know. Did you get permission to use their names in your campaign? I do not know. Mary, did you take a swine flu shot?
9: No, I did not.
7: Did you give them permission to use your name saying that you had or were going to?
9: Absolutely not. Never did.
7: Did you ask your own doctor about taking the swine flu shot?
9: Yes, and at the time he thought it might be a good idea. Um, But I resisted it because I was leery of having the symptoms that sometimes go with that kind of inoculation.
7: So you didn't? No, I didn't. Have you spoken to your doctor since?
9: Yes. And? He's delighted that I didn't take that shot.
7: You're in charge. Somebody's in charge. There are. This is your advertising strategy that I have a copy of here. Who's it signed by? This one is unsigned. But you, you'll acknowledge that it was your
10: baby, so to speak. It uh, could have been from the uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. It could be from CDC. I don't know. I'll be happy to take uh,
7: responsibility for it. It's been three years now since you fell ill with GVS. right
9: Right.
7: has the federal government in your estimation played fair with you about your claim
9: no I don't think so Uh, it seems to be dragging on and on and on and really no end in sight that I can see at this point
5: with respect to the cases of Guillaume Barre allegedly former secretary of H.E.W. Joseph Califano
7: too was disturbed that there was no end in sight So a year and a half ago, he promised that Uncle Sam would cut the bureaucratic red tape for victims suffering from GDS and
5: would pay up quickly. We shouldn't hold them to an impossible or too difficult standard of proving that they were hurt. Even if we pay a few people a few thousand dollars that might not have deserved it, I think justice requires that we promptly pay those people who do deserve it. Who's making the decision to be so hard-nosed about settling? I assume the uh, Justice Department is. Griffin uh, Bell before he left? Well, the Justice Department agreed to the statement I made. It was cleared word for word uh, with the lawyers in the Justice Department by my HEW lawyers. And that statement said, in effect, that that statement said that we should pay uh, Guillaume Beret claims without regard to whether the federal government was negligent if they re- if they resulted from the
1: swine flu shot. I think the government knows it's wrong.
9: If it drags out long enough that people will just give up,
1: <laughs> let it go. I, I am a little more adamant in my thoughts than my wife is because uh, I asked, told Judy to take the shot. She wasn't going to take it and uh, she never had had shots and uh, I'm mad with my government because they knew the facts, but they didn't release those facts because they, if they had released them, the people wouldn't have taken it. And they can come out tomorrow and tell me there's going to be an epidemic and they can drop off like flies next to me, I will not take another shot that my government tells me to take.
7: Meantime, Judy Roberts and some 4,000 others like her are still waiting for their day in court.
8: I don't need another flu shot. I had a flu shot last year. A swine flu epidemic may be
11: coming. Swine flu shot? Well, I don't know. I've been thinking about it.
8: It could make you very sick.
3: Swine flu? Man, I'm too fast today to catch me.
8: You'll want to. I'm the healthiest
7: 55-year-old you've ever seen. Hey, I play golf every weekend. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot.
11: Joe brought it home from the office. He gave it to Betty and one of his kids. And to Betty's mother. But Betty's mother went back to California the next day. On her way to the airport, she gave it to a cab driver, a ticket agent, and one of the charming stewardesses. At school, Joe's kid gave it to some other kids. And Mrs. Merrill got it and gave it to her husband. In California, Betty's mother gave it to her best friend, Dottie. But Dottie had a heart condition and she died. But before she died, Dottie gave it to her girlfriend, the mailman, the paper boy, and the vet when she went to pick up her chihuahua.
8: If a swine flu epidemic comes, this is how it could spread. You'll want to be protected, especially if you're elderly or chronically
0: ill. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. Nothing like propaganda of fear. And people buy into it every time. Continuing on, what I find most extraordinary about this clip is that while the 1976 vaccine was much less damaging than the COVID-19 vaccine, in this current era of mass censorship, airing a segment like this would be unthinkable. Oh, yeah. Imagine if they started talking about all the people who were dropping dead uh, without any, what do you want to call it, cause unknown and just, uh, just keeled over. If we had news reports of every time that happened, oh my goodness, Katie, bar the door. One of the more remarkable things about these events is how they were seen in the eyes of government officials. The Public Health Crisis Survival Guide, quoted via Oxford, provides a remarkable illustration into the administrative mindset. In early 1976, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention proposed and President Gerald Ford Approved a plan to vaccinate the country against swine uh, swine influenza, a new infection that had only recently appeared on a New Jersey Army base. While agency leaders imagined themselves rising to the challenge of a crisis, mismanagement and poor communication led to the debacle for public health. Problems included logistical difficulties in manufacturing the vaccine, disputes with Congress, and the inability to revise the vaccination goal in light of the fact that the disease never returned. When people who were vaccinated fell ill with neurological complications, the vaccine effort ended, but not before causing grave damage to confidence in public health agencies. Oh gee, that's at least the most thing they're worried about. Nothing about the health and wellness of the people that were jabbed, just a lack of competence in the public health agencies note this is effect this effectively says the mistake in this debacle was poor control of the media that it damaged public trust in all important vaccination programs rather than say pushing an unsafe ineffective unneeded vaccine under the market and ignoring every warning to the contrary but then we have pertussis developed a century ago the original pertussis vaccine also known as whooping cough uh, was incredibly dangerous and from the very start evidence emerged which was which i compiled here showing that it caused seizures permanent brain damage and if, and infants to die suddenly i've extensively studied this subject because it uh, because multiple relatives develop permanent brain damage from it, one of whom we were eventually allowed to treat and in time successfully restored the lost neurological function of. That's cool. And to this day, I still periodically meet people, e.g., an, epi- epi- an epileptic, whose entire lives were upended by that vaccine. The saddest thing about this is that in each case, the child's pediatrician failed to recognize the initial adverse reaction, which should have been recognized um should have been a recognized contraindication to the subsequently damaging disability reaction or permanently disability reaction and often denied the child's injury, insisting the vaccine was 100% safe and effective. Party line. The benefit of pertussis vaccine is marginal at best. E.g. outbreaks often happen in vaccinated communities. Hmm, imagine that. They shouldn't. Pertussis can be can easily be treated with antibiotics and oral vitamin C. Yeah, and if you do it ahead of time, just the vitamin C, chances are you'll never get it in the first place. It was possible to make a safer but not completely safe pertussis vaccine. However, since it costs more to make those, the industry never did so until lawsuits in the 1980s financially incentivized them to do it. Note, this is very similar to the infamous Ford Pinto memo, (laughs) where Ford's management decided they would not fix the Pinto tendency to explode after car accidents as the cost to settle lawsuits was significantly less than the cost to make the cars safe in crashes. Sadly, many similar examples of profits being put over people also exist. Oh yeah, look at all the drugs out there they automatically figure in how many people are going to be maimed and killed from it. And they figure into the cost of the drug, the money that will then be saved up and, you know, kept on hand to pay those lawsuits. Absolute disgusting. They know it's going to kill people, but that's okay. We're going to make more money than we'll have to pay out. So it'll be a plus plus for us. However, Rather than pull the pertussis vaccine from the market, or at least uh, ask for a safer one, government officials ignored the innumerable issues they came across and continued to push the vaccine upon the world, even as other developed nations gradually dropped it. Note, one school of thought argues that the government's attachment to pertussis vaccine comes from the fact that it has is always Uh, packaged with the tetanus and diphtheria vaccine and tetanus vaccine when laced with hcg is the most effective sterilizing vaccine that was ever developed The, the the who spent decades developing it and there are many tragic cases of it being deployed in the third world yeah they 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 sterilized all kinds of women in africa giving them these stupid jabs Eventually, in 1982, an investigative journalist at NBC decided to publish an expose on this vaccine, which again highlighted the degree to which the American government will lie to protect the vaccine program. I'm just curious how long this one is. Uh, Too long, 51 minutes. And then they go on, once the video was aired, lawsuits began being filed against the DPT manufacturers, and parents from across the nation began to contact NBC to ask to be connected with other parents with similar injuries. Before long, these parents joined to form a group which successfully began the modern political movement against the vaccine manufacturers. Oh, baby, then we have Gardasil. And, uh... (laughs) In the 1970s and 80s, dissident physicians were allowed to publicly voice their objections to the medical industry on national television. For example, Robert Robert S. Mendelssohn Robert Robert, (laughs) I wonder if they meant to say Dr. Robert, oh well, uh, was a prestigious and gifted pediatrician who turned uh, into a medical dissident after he learned that the Johnson administration was planning to weaponize public health against the poor to keep them in poverty which, according to a a colleague Mendelssohn mentored, was too much of an affront to his Jewish values to be complicit in. Mendelssohn's work, in turn, created uh, much of the modern vaccine uh, safety movement, and he was allowed to speak on the largest media platforms in America, something which would be unthinkable today. Consider this 1985 segment in The Donahue Show, for example. Hopefully this won't be too long
2: it's just that i think the public needs to be informed we need to be told the benefits versus the risk we need to know what we're facing
3: well the darker side of the polio vaccine and what nobody knows is that jonas salk has pointed out that in the last 10 years in this country two-thirds of all the cases of polio have been vaccine induced how many and only, cases is that bob and, uh, and, and only and how many cases bob uh, would you not interrupt me for a second? I know, I know that I know that doctors are used to interrupting patients, but not another doctor.
11: Absolutely, <laughs> uh,
3: I think, uh, but but well, let's get. Uh, he
8: does make a point, but uh, we should also say Saban is live, and uh, live vaccine and Salk is uh, is inactive, it's is inactive, inactive right. as we say in the laboratory. All right. Uh, how many was it? Uh, they asked.
3: Well, how many people know that, that the European epidemic of polio, there were about 20 or 30 cases in this country. Now, of course, the American doctors will argue that the reason why polio disappeared in this country was because of the vaccine. But then why did it disappear in Europe in the 1940s and the 1950s without mass vaccination? Right. Why doesn't it occur in the third world where only 10% of the people have ever been immunized against polio or anything else? So, in other words, we may be
8: fighting a tiger that died. That's uh, quite correct.
3: Uh, ask the people in Great Britain. Ask the
10: people uh, in Japan.
8: who. All uh, uh, well, the uh, uh, back here. Gentlemen, if you please. I've got probably the smartest audience we've ever had.
2: <laughs> I have a question. Uh, how long a delayed action, if any, would you connect this with, like MS?
8: Is MS a possibility? It would multiple sclerosis be one of the uh, possible results?
3: As, as a matter of fact... There's a new publication that just came out from John Hoffman, who's a close associate of Tony Morris's, that gives the references linking MS in later life to the early introduction of live virus vaccines like measles and like some of the others that are live viruses. Now at the present time, I would I would at the present time I would recommend that anybody who has MS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or any of those degenerative neurologic conditions of later life carefully review their vaccine histories.
2: I would also like to c- comment to that because in connection with my case I've been doing some research.
8: Let me tell him once again, uh, Ms. Gundy, that you are a Guillain-Barre victim uh, contracted line. following the uh, Following your receipt of the uh, swine flu vaccination. Yes, and uh, I,
2: I am in the process of writing a book about my experience, and in the process I've done considerable research. And from what I have learned, it looks as if immunizations frequently cause autoimmune diseases, not only Guillain-Barre syndrome, but lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and other types of yes. things. Now, I have no data at this yes. point. We Back should, also, up,
8: we should also say that there's a good, good deal of evidence suggesting that multiple sclerosis may be the result of uh, distemper in an animal that the victim received during childhood. But now, none of this is absolutely nailed to the wall. One. But that's the problem with this. How's a what's a mother to do with all of these balls in the air and nobody really certain?
2: I would just like to also comment that we had 46 million people vaccine, vaccinated with the swine flu shot, and I have written to Ralph Nader's organization. I have written to some of the government organizations, trying to get them to do a survey, a ongoing survey, to see if these vaccinations do cause autoimmune diseases or what the reactions are. I can't even get a response because I'm not a doctor, I have no clout, I'm a nobody.
8: Mrs. Grant, why were you shaking your head?
2: It isn't only with that vaccine, it's with all vaccines. They are not interested in the adverse reactions. As a matter of fact, if I may, I'd like to invite anyone to write to me if they've had an adverse reaction. I'd like to help the government because they don't want to know, but I would like to know. I am a mother of three children and I have been informed and I have read up on these things. And I chose not to vaccinate my children, but when they get to school, why is it that I have to fight for my rights as a mother and the choice I've made? Let uh, me
8: just quickly, we're along, but that's a very important question. Here are the states in which uh, you either have the totally free uh, decision about whether or not to vaccinate, or there's, we're calling them loophole states, states where they're not going to send your child to uh, solitary if you don't have his card. You know? All right, California... Uh, not all children must be immunized in these states. Some require religious reasons. Some places there is a bureaucratic humma-humma you have to go through to prove that you're this or that. And others it's probably easier. So just for the sake of simplifying this, Colorado, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Utah, Vermont, Washington, and Wisconsin. If your state is not on there, it means that your child is going to be left at the kindergarten door, feeling very, very much an outcast because he didn't get his immunization shots. And we'll be back in a moment.
0: Yeah, that list has gotten shorter and shorter over the years. But anyway, we're just about out of time, and this is quite the lengthy article. I I didn't really scroll through it when I first started, but boy, it goes on and on and on. There we go. There's the end of it finally. But uh, Dr. Tenpenny's done quite a bit of research. I mean, she's been looking into uh, vaccines, uh, especially the childhood ones, for over 20 years now. And is probably one of the most researched people out there when it comes to these things. And unfortunately, you know, she's looked at one of uh, you know the deadly dozen, I think is what the term was. I can't remember the exact term they came up with, but... She was one of the people, uh, one of 12, who uh, was labeled as a dangerous person during the COVID crap because they were telling the truth about the the jabs. And uh, I'm glad to see that she's still working on that. And uh, she's one person I trust implicitly with uh, as far as her opinion on these things. And uh, there's there's a lot more out there that are now starting to pop up. You know, Dr. Humphreys and Roman Bistrianic, uh, when she was talking about them, um they wrote the book dissolving illusions which uh, i encourage people to get and look at it is excellent as far as digging up the old history like she mentioned um the old books that you know dealt with uh, vaccines and always called them unsafe and ineffective and all that stuff was buried in medical libraries or just trashed you know anything that shows that tells the truth about vaccines is purged from the public view and uh, unfortunately that's caused a lot of problems and a lot of ignorance but thank goodness a lot of people have uh, been able to dig those things up uh, dr humphreys and uh, mr bistrianic being two of them and uh, they've reproduced a lot of those uh, things in their book dissolving illusions and uh, there are still some books out there that are available free of charge in pdf format that uh, i've got a few of them and Now, if you go on uh, uh, the Wayback Machine or just do some searching, it may take some digging. But if you do some Internet searches, don't use uh, Google or any of those because they're going to cover it all up. If you do some of the uh, better, (laughs) if you could call it that, uh, search engines out there, you'll find some information showing that you can download these books and they show the horrors and that's one of them is the horrors of vaccines exposed which was written in 1920 and uh, there's others proven you know i think proven unsafe and ineffective or something like that but there's a bunch of books out there that are available in pdf form free of charge all you got to do is download them and you know save them on a hard drive uh multiple places Uh, uh uh-oh Dogs are goofing around, knock something over, and scared themselves. <laughs> but anyway, there's a lot of books out there that you can dig up, and I encourage people to do it just to have them on hand. And most of them are old, you know, from the early 1900s or even before that. That really tell the truth about what's going on with these dangerous bioweapons you know. And I like to call them lethal injections. Um, and who knows how many people uh at my age even you know there's there's folks out there that um you know when i was little we got very few vaccines thank goodness and um polio was one of them but um i just wonder how many people that i know that have uh either cancer now or have died from cancers uh if they have it as a result of getting that jab when they were little um who knows but there's uh one thing that's sure all the studies that have been done when you look at people who have been vaccinated versus people have been unvaccinated the unvaccinated people are always always healthier even if they tend to get the illness that the vaccine was supposedly designed to prevent you know they get it they're over it in a week and they're back to normal as opposed to the people that took the jabs Maybe they don't get measles. Maybe they don't get chicken pox. But they may very well end up with Guillain-Barre syndrome. They may end up dying uh, from sudden infant death. They may have uh, asthma. They may have autism. And those are lifelong problems that you never really get over. Which would you rather have? Seven days of discomfort because you didn't take the jab? And that's not saying that you would get it if you don't take it. You know, they aren't that productive. But there have been, you know, some of the studies have actually shown that a few, you know, in, in cases where they're comparing the like the measles vaccine to the people that didn't get it. Yeah, the kids that didn't get it might get measles. So what? Like I said, they're over it and they're done and they still have a, knife, a life to live. But the kids that do get it, the MMR, chances are they've got a good chance of becoming autistic or having all kinds of lifelong health issues that you know most people would say i'd rather have the measles for a week so there you have it but anyway we are pretty much out of time I want to wish everybody a happy thanksgiving spend it with family and friends and folks that you love and care for uh don't eat too much try to stay carnivore i dropped off i last night i somebody uh, at church made me some baklava that i dearly love and unfortunately she knew that i was doing carnivore and forgot and i mentioned to her oh my goodness i said that's okay my wife took a couple of them home i'll probably fall off the wagon well i did and i was a pound and a half heavier than this morning one that i was yesterday (laughs) so that's what happens when you fall off the wagon otherwise it was it was good though i gotta say that take care of your bodies it's the only place you have to live we'll see you on monday have a wonderful weekend god bless